0: Murray Cod, not only does it not grow anywhere else in the world, it doesn't even grow anywhere else in Australia. It only grows in the Murray Darling Basin. Land based aquaculture is a great system of production. It's, I've been in agribusiness for 30 years and it's probably the best agribusiness I've ever seen.
1: Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew on. I'm Anthea Fawcett. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle. To enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair, and resilient food system and environment, I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia, and recognise their continuing connections to land, water, and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded, and pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. Who doesn't love clean, green, delicious fish like Tasmanian Atlantic salmon, a hugely popular go-to protein for so many Australians? That was until Richard Flanagan's powerful book, Toxic, the rotting underbelly of the Tasmanian salmon industry, published in 2021, told the story of big problems with the industry and the negative impacts on the environment of salmon produced in large-scale industrial aquaculture in Tasmania's once pristine precious oceans. Flanagan's Toxic is a heart and environmentally wrenching story, but it isn't all bad news. In a webinar he presented about the issues, he shone light on where there's hope and great potential, that is, to expand sustainable, vertically integrated, closed-loop land-based aquaculture. In this episode, I'm really excited to be speaking with Ross Anderson about the inspiring story of Acuna Sustainable Murray Cod. Acuna is an award-winning land-based producer of Murray Cod, one of the most ancient, delicious and highly revered fish. Once prolific in the wild, now listed as nationally threatened in 2003. And of course, so special to Australia's First Peoples and the Murray-Darling Basin Ecosystems. Welcome, Ross, and thank you so much for joining me on Nourishing Matters.
0: Thank you, Anthea. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Ross, you're the chair of Acuna Sustainable Murray Cod and possess deep commercial experience in agribusiness and capital markets, both as an accountant and other roles that have included president of the MF Global Client Support Group in Australia, I understand. Ross, can you tell me about how did you first get to know about and get involved with Acuna and what most excites you about about what it does and the amazing fish it produces?
0: Look, it's... It's an absolutely fabulous business in the sense that I suppose I'll take you back to what got me started in it. What got me started in it was there was a very clever young man by the name of Matthew Ryan, who's now our managing director, who uh, did an agronomy degree at university, came back and managed his family farm after his, his father's untimely death. And after about 10 or 15 years of that, he decided he didn't want to be in the commodity business. Uh, He was growing wheat and he really wanted to move into something where he felt there was shrinking supply and growing demand. Mm. And he said to me, he said, I'm going to start a fish farm. And he began with a small block out at Bilbo, just near the Bortley Wines outside Griffiths. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he began attempting to grow Murray Cod. And through sort of some really solid scientific due diligence and, and a few accidental discoveries, which led him on his way, which is how science tends to operate. <laughs> he developed a method of growing these really clean, beautiful fish in a sustainable way um, that was quite Good to replicate you know it was perfect for this region the fish are a native species they tasted delicious and actually what got me involved with it was in about 2015 or 16 i was sitting in a local restaurant and i ordered the the local murray cod to eat and i was blown away by the rich creamy gelatinous flavor of it and how good it was and and I said, and being a bit of a foodie who's who's traveled the world and eaten in good restaurants all over the place, I was really excited by it. And I went out to see Matt and uh, Roger Cummins, who had also become involved, who's a local agricultural entrepreneur um, and had a look at what they were doing with it and how they were beginning to form the fledgling of an, of an industry, if you like. Um, and so I got involved with them and we took a, a former gold mining company, which hadn't discovered any gold. And, um, and it happened to purchase the, uh, the grow out farm of Matt Ryan uh, called Riverina Aquaculture. It purchased Biggie Fresh, which was a, a, a nursery system designed for growing small maricot into, into larger ones to go out to the ponds and a hatchery we said, well, it's not much use doing this unless we're fully integrated and we can have full traceability for our customers. So we purchased the hatchery, the nursery and the grow-out farm um, and we listed it on the Australian Stock Exchange in January of 2017. Uh, so we've been going a bit over five years and we moved from startup uh, startup to adolescence, if you like. Um, we branded our fish Acuna which means flowing waters in the local indigenous language. Um, we spelt it with a Q to signify that through technology and innovation, you actually get a better tasting product than you could get if you caught one in the wild. Um, and we, we put four guiding principles around how this company would operate. And those four guiding principles are really the, the things that we refer to in every decision we make about how we operate the business. The first one is quality you know we know it's a beautiful product to eat uh you know the records of major mitchell going down the river when he was on his first expedition through the country and surviving on on murray cod saying what a beautiful fish it was Mm. there are records of you know hundreds of tons being when the railheads opened in victoria hundreds of tons of of murray cod being shipped down to the the melbourne uh, particularly during winter when nobody wanted to go fishing on a sailboat in the middle of Bass Strait in winter the Murray Cod were a very easy target and so as a a result they began to become a bit endangered so sustainability is a second principle which guides our company um, from the fact that we've released 23 million native fish back into the river system for restocking rivers and ponds um, from the fact that we use our nutrient enriched water to irrigate crops and uh, crops and pastures on the adjoining fields um, and the fact that, you know, from a uh, an environmental protection aspect, we have fully contained systems. So no wastewater ever leaves our property, no disease could ever, no, you know, no wastewater ever gets anywhere near a native waterway or or could infect anything else. Um, and because of the, the small closed systems we have with the ponds, we're able to control the water quality quite well. You know, it's not like being in a... A large river or a large ocean, where it's impossible to to impact the water quality, we're able to manipulate that quite carefully.
1: And you have to be responsible for what you put in because you've got to get it out.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So, and that comes to another one of the uh, the factors of our company is about integrity, and product integrity is is really important to us. So, when you eat your fish, you know, at at Key Restaurant or Aria or somewhere, Tetsuya's. Which all those guys have had it on their menus at different times, and I think some of them have it now. You can have complete confidence that we could tell you who the fish's mother and father is, what's been in the water, how it's been treated, um, what it's been fed, from the day it's hatched until the day it hits your dinner plate. Um, we've got complete traceability on that fish. There are aspects of our of our product integrity that we want to tighten up, particularly around the feed. You know, we're not certainly not perfect yet um, but our aim is to have it really really uh, in the situation where we can tell you every aspect of how that fish is treated how it lives what it's fed what right down to the enzymes and the food that's going into it Um, and the last aspect that you know the last principle that we work on is innovation and this to me was one of the things that got me started really and so excited about this business because it's a magnificent innovation to to look at what's happened here. If you look at the regional area here with the the Murray-Darling Basin Commission and and the Howard government taking a lot of water out of the region, we ended up in a situation, so a lot of irrigation water was taken away for, for environmental flows. And so farmers had more land available than they could actually use for irrigation purposes. And so there's this magnificent infrastructure of all this laser-levelled land, with power to the boundary of every property, water delivered to the boundary of every property, electricity. Um, It's the perfect floodplain where the where the fish have lived for many many millions of years. Um, So it's the the infrastructure and the environment we're already here for it, and our guys have innovated by taking that native fish, placing it in an environment so similar to its native environment that It produces this beautiful quality product from land that previously wasn't being used.
1: My goodness, I think you've just covered all the questions I was going to ask you. (laughs) What a a fabulous story. Oh, my goodness. And how beautifully told, too. Goodness. So feedstock, I was going to come to that further down the track, but gosh, you've just introduced it so fabulously. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. So just for listeners, the floodplain we're talking about, it's in the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Region, isn't it?
0: Yeah, the floodplain's in the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Region, but, you know, Australia has a very short history uh, of of white settlement and effectively before the Snowy Hydro Scheme was built uh, in the Snowy Mountains up behind Canberra and in around Jindabon, Mm. whenever there was rain on the mountains, there would be a flood event. So you wouldn't even need rain on the plains. Rain would occur on the mountains. The water would come racing down the river system and you would have water from Burke to Shepparton. And these magnificent fish would live. And to hay. And to hay. And they were floodplains. You know, they were plains and they would end up with water all over them. The rivers would join. Uh, My parents talk about, you know, the rivers joining back in the nineteen, the great floods of the 1950s and we've seen the 1974 floods you know around wagga where just vast areas of land were were underwater and and they were all mitigated by the snowy hydro scheme before that there was nothing to stop that water just flowing down and spreading out across the across the landscape and when it did you know the native fish the murray cod that would live right up underneath where the snow was melting at five or six degrees they would wash out with those floods and they'd come out into the overland floods and they'd end up in a puddle maybe the size of your room mm. um, as the floods receded and they'd have to wait for the next flood to take them back to the river. And they might be waiting there through a hot summer and they've moved from five or six degrees water temperature to this muddy puddle at the back of Burke somewhere, waiting and waiting for the for the next flood to move them back to the river. And they'd get water temperatures, you know, 28, 30 degrees and horrible water quality and they would survive in that because they evolved to do that over 30 or 40 million years and so what we've got is a fish that's actually perfect for aquaculture because it's got this huge temperature variation that it it can uh, it can handle tolerate and it also makes it a fabulous fish for aquaculture in that we're one of the only fish farmers in the world who don't use any antibiotics in our grow out systems and the reason for that is during winter The temperature of our ponds gets down to 9 or 10 degrees, which means most of the bugs that affect the fish uh, won't survive below about 14 or 15 degrees. And so our fish come through and hit spring, you know, vibrant and healthy and clean and just, you know, grow with a lot of vigour. It makes it a really fantastic fish from an aquaculture point of view. Uh, because they they survive this beautiful water temperature variation
1: Mm. and and in a changing climate changing conditions even more intensely more regularly i was speaking with david crow recently yes about just these amazing fish and how incredible they are and um in particular talking about them being such an ancient fish like such an ancient fish that they've actually lived the species has lived through eras of climate change yes it's fascinating
0: they have, they have, and they're, look, they are an amazing fish. Uh, they lay down fat in a way that I haven't seen other fish do. Um, you know, they'll lay down big layers of visceral fat inside their, their stomach cavity. Um, and it makes them a fabulous cooking fish because, you know, you have all these beautiful gelatinous qualities coming through, full of omega-3s and 6s, mm. and you have a fish on your plate that just doesn't dry out. And you have a fish that has a very mild taste. So they're just wonderful for that reason.
1: And do they like, you know, it's a loaded question, I suppose. How how can you tell? But what's your sense of how these amazing fish, ancient, often quite aggressive during the breeding season in the wild, I understand, full of character, full of, you know, amazing (laughs) genetic memory. How do you think they like living? In an agricultural setting
0: well i think they like it a lot better than they like living in a degraded darling river system where they die without any oxygen um and covered in blue green algae yeah Um, so it becomes becomes a very interesting question what we've discovered is is that um, when we put them together they revert to a schooling uh, mentality or a schooling behavior which fish naturally do you know if you look at your Nature documentaries or your David Attenborough videos on television, you'll see in the big wide ocean, the fish all school together. It's their habit and it's their nature. Yeah. And so we find that our fish have much better health, they feed better, they are less stressed uh, when they're densely enough packed to be able to have a schooling behavior. If we leave them too far apart, uh, they're probably a bit like humans, they become a bit territorial. And quite aggressive with each other, and as a result, suffer quite badly. So, we've, you know, and our vet has done a lot of work on this, and we think the stewardship and the care of our fish under our care is very important. Um, And so, we've actually studied this quite a lot, and we're putting obviously more work into it all the time because it's such a new industry. But uh, seeing them in a schooling scenario, they seem much, much happier than they do uh, when they're lonely and aggressive.
1: So interesting. I mean, they're, probably incredibly intelligent fish too aren't they um there's a whole sort of body of practice these days around recording recording the sounds of ecosystems and the sounds of rivers and the sounds of species and i heard a great interview recently uh in which a young researcher was talking about her phd recording um i can't remember what species but uh fish in the oceans off off the New South Wales coast, to be able to tell when they want to mate and connect and like this language of fish, um, that could be an exciting thing to look into as well.
0: Look, it could be. It's something that uh, I certainly don't know anything about. Um, It's probably more for our, our vets and our technical guys to talk about that.
1: I was going to ask you a question about vertical integration. And I think you've really covered a lot of that pretty well haven't you um I was just wanting to draw out that the business started with those three different um activities silverwater native fish the hatchery biggie fish the nursery and riverina aquaculture the farm and as you've said you've already described how they came together and Matt was very much a key person instigating each of those branches of the business are there any other sort of um aspects of the vertical nature of the business that you'd just like to flag
0: Look, one of the things that we've begun to do recently is uh, bypass the or, or re- significantly reduce the amount of time in the nursery. Um, and this has only been done for a couple of years now. Um, so previously, you know, the established practice when we started from, you know, people like New South Wales Fisheries who'd done research on it and so on was that you would hatch the fish, you would put them indoors in a nursery with controlled environment until they reached 100 120 30 grams in size and then you would take them out to their grow out in in an open pond we found that when they moved from the nursery to the open grow out they were very stressed so they've lived all their lives they've lived six or seven months in indoors in a controlled environment with no stress, you know, a bit like us living indoors and suddenly being taken out <laughs> to to live in a tent somewhere or sleep under the stars, we'd probably be a little bit stressed for a start. So what we've done is is bypass that system to a degree where once they're hatched, they go through the nursery, so they'll be hatched at you know, uh, come into the nur- they'll be hatched, then they come into the nursery at sort of one gram, um, spend a couple of weeks there. And in those couple of weeks they might go out at, you know, eight to 10 grams in size. And they go straight out to what we call our juvenile ponds. And so we've started this system of moving them straight out to the ponds at an earlier age. And what we're finding is we're getting better fish health. uh, And particularly uh, when they hit the following spring, they're much happier and, and better adjusted, if you like than than the fish coming out of the nur coming out of the the dark warm nursery into the spring ponds are very stressed and go off their feed and we've we've developed this system now of just bringing them through smoothly all the way through the ponds uh, from a vertical integration point of view, it's actually sped the process up a fraction it's it's sped the process up in terms of getting them out to ponds, but they do grow a little slower in the ponds. For that first six months, and because the water temperature is a bit colder.
1: But that's incredibly innovative. Are people doing similar things overseas? I don't know. Uh, I was going to ask you about some of the most innovative, outstanding achievements so far, and I think you've touched on quite a number of them already. Would you like to, you know, hatchery breeding, spawning in captivity? What's the, what are the best conditions like you've just described for a comfortable transition into the ponds, the grow-out ponds, and so forth? What about? Um, and you, you alluded to feedstocks, and that that's one area you possibly might continue further work on, or that's a, a focus. So, what do Murray cod traditionally eat in the wild, and what do they currently eat within kunas production system? Is that yes. confidential, or can you tell us what they eat?
0: No, we're very happy to talk about anything. We have complete transparency in our in our in our business. So, so the first thing is uh, what they eat in the wild. Um, I've been told that big ones will will eat wild ducks off the surface predatory <laughs> um, they'll they'll they are great they are the the alpha predator in the river system and they would eat whatever they could depending on their size and they would even eat each other so the big ones would eat the little ones if they could catch them um, in our system we've been feeding them a diet uh, produced by the large feed producers based in Tasmania there are basically three large feed producers of, of aquaculture food in Australia, screddings, biomar and Ridley's. Um, And we haven't been able to get transparency or good enough transparency on the diets. Um, And so we've begun work with a Japanese company that has some excellent uh, natural technologies. You know, they use the extracts of tree bark to promote fish health. They, They have a number of things that are really positive ways of of promoting the, the health and the growth of the fish in very using very natural ingredients. So we've actually begun a project where we've commissioned what we call our vegan diet. I don't know that that's the right way to, to call it, but what it effectively means is that we have a diet formulated for us at the moment, which is made entirely of plant-based proteins. Um, so we analysed the amino acids in the, in the previous diet and we've replaced it with, with plant-based uh, proteins. We're doing a trial with Beacon University now to see how that impacts on fish growth, fish health, and of course, fish taste. Um, and we'll have more information for you on that in you know six months or so. But at this stage, that's where we're looking to go. We want to have complete transparency in and traceability in everything we do and the one area where we don't have enough control at the moment is in the food and and so we're working we're working to change that as fast as we can
1: how interesting and in terms of scaling like that's going to be something that becomes more and more uh you know focal
0: yeah as we scale it becomes much simpler for us we were so small to begin with you know the big food producers just said oh look you can't we're not going to make anything for For Murray Cod, we'll just uh, give you the barramundi diet.
1: Has the team also been working on breeding and producing other freshwater fish species, given given this incredible knowledge and depth and incredible environmental ecological contribution the business is making? Are you also producing other freshwater fish?
0: At our hatcheries, we produce golden perch, silver perch and Murray Cod. Um, Those go out as fingerlings for the new south wales victorian and south australian fisheries to restock rivers and dams but from a grow out perspective we we're focusing at this stage completely on murray cod Um, we did do a trial with uh with some uh golden perch Mm -hmm. who are just they're just a magnificent eating fish
1: i'm told they are
0: (laughs) they're just absolutely magnificent to eat but If you're going to be successful as a company and and do something really well, you need to have a narrow focus for a start. So we're gonna focus entirely on perfecting what we do with Acuna Sustainable Murray Cod. And once we've got that, we may look at Acuna Sustainable Golden Perch. Um, There's nothing to stop us, you know, looking at other high quality species to do things with but let's take one step at a time. And as I say, we've just gone from startup to adolescence.
1: So the Golden and Silver Perch, in a a sense, they're an ecological services business. You're currently selling them to replenish uh, ecological stocks as you've just...
0: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah.
1: That's so exciting. Gosh, you've already mentioned Matthew Ryan um, and his incredible background and how he started this whole fabulous enterprise. Can you tell me a bit more about the other... I don't know, a bit more about the team more generally, the culture of the place, and um, there's an incredible vibe going on and, and, and I understand you've got a big focus on inclusivity and lots of amazing women in high-level roles and things. Would you like to talk about the culture of the place?
0: Yeah, look, the culture is that whoever can do a job is the one who does it. We're not interested in creed, colour, sex or anything else. Um, we've always operated on the basis of of uh, who's the best quality person to do something. And that's on our ponds, in our management team, wherever we operate. It's never really been an issue for us, for myself. You know, I've been in business for 30 years. And I think uh, I've had a team of ladies who've been in senior positions in that business for 26 or 27 of those years. So from that perspective, it, it operates really well. We really look for people who think outside the box and who want to innovate. But still have a commercial edge to that innovation. You know, we don't want, we can't afford. We're so young that we can't afford to to make big mistakes. We can we can make some little ones, and we operate on the premise that if you don't make a few mistakes, you're not taking enough risk. But we have a really inclusive team, young people coming through. One of the things that you find out here is nobody had ever grown Murray cod before, so we've had a, an enormous training. Uh, component to our business in the last five years building teams we've had people come across from the chicken industry um, who've been great because they understand biosecurity they understand you know protein production but they've been learning a lot about fish and we have some incredible young men and women who are you know building themselves into quite senior positions in the company simply because there's nobody else to do it In you know in, in inland aquaculture, there's been nobody in Australia doing it. So these guys are learning and developing and and moving into running the company as we move along, which is fabulous.
1: And Murray cod, a culturally and ecologically, you know, deeply important uh, species and 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 part of Aboriginal culture. Do you have um what, what are your sort of connections with the local Aboriginal community and employees and so forth?
0: Look at a personal level, I grew up, you know. Living in the Aboriginal communities of of uh, Darlington Point and around that area, and playing footy with a lot of those boys, and so understand and fishing with them, and so on. So, from that perspective, you know we've we've got great personal connections. Um, at a company level, we want to be inclusive for all people. Mm. Um, so, you know, recreational fishers, of whom the Indigenous community are many, um, we sponsor fishing competitions. Um, we restock a lot of uh, fish for fishing clubs up and down the river system within the Murray-Darling Basin. And our focus is that, you know, we'll work with anyone in the community who who wants to promote the species and promote the health of the Murray-Darling Basin.
1: Has there been any pushback from Aboriginal people to what you're doing?
0: No, none whatsoever. Everybody's happy that there are more fish in the river. I had to ask. You know, 20 years ago, you struggled, 20, 25 years ago, you struggled to catch a Murray cod in the Murrumbidgee. But if you go out there now, you'll catch five or six in an afternoon.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. And these amazing fish, an average age in the wild, when they were endemic in the wild, could have been something like before, if, until almost about 50 years old and quite common to be 15, 20 years old and obviously different weights, different ages. What's the sort of age bracket? that you're producing your Murray cod for before they go to sale? It's
0: it's interesting because we're different consumers like different sized fish. So our, our Asian uh, people of Asian heritage tend to like a plate sized fish that they can steam. Mm. Um, and so they might be, you know, they might be an 800 to sort of 1.2 kilo fish. Um, the high end Western style restaurants tend to like larger fish, three kilos plus where they can take the fillet and the loins and they tend to do things with the bones. And, you know, guys like Josh Nyland are using the whole fish. So they're those top end chefs are really using the whole fish and working with them in all sorts of ways. Um, But for us, there's a variety of of sizes that we, we send them out to market where that ends up and where the bulk of it ends up, you know, we've only been going five years, so we don't know Um, the fish themselves are uh, extremely high quality flesh at three kilos, um, where we sell a lot of them.
1: How old am I as a Murray Cod to be three kilos?
0: Anywhere from two to four years old. So the population is a bit like humans. You know, we have big ones and little ones. So within the same pen, there may be some that are, you know, three and a half to four kilos. And within that same pen, there may be some that are, you know, 1.5 to two and a half kilos. They, they vary in a fairly normal population distribution just like anybody else and and the reason for that is they're still pretty much a wild population you know we haven't done any selective breeding or anything with them to any great extent yet
1: interesting so a four-year-old fish that's a very valuable a premium valuable uh, animal on a whole lot of levels isn't it
0: it is yeah yeah it is most of them are about three years old at that you know at that level
1: aquaculture is one of the fastest growing food producing industries in the world um, it's a key and growing source of protein for many people around the world. According to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organisation, global aquaculture production rose 520% for the period 1990 to 2018. That's from data from 2020.
0: That would be right.
1: It's amazing, isn't it? And some 54% of seafood consumed worldwide is produced through aquaculture, but approximately 87% of seafood fish purchased in New South Wales is important. Now, I'm not sure if that includes fresh fish, I'm sure to check that. But either way, there are enormous domestic and export opportunities for sustainably produced high quality fish. Ross, tell us about what as you keep saying, you're an adolescent on the, you know, rapidly growing and clever and precocious and lots of integrity and sustainability. So it's so exciting. And, uh, and who knows? The world's your oyster probably. But what are the sorts of production goals for Akuna? say by 2030?
0: Oh, look, we're, we're on track to produce 10,000 tonnes of Acuna Murray cod by the year 2030. Um, when we listed four years ago, I think we had about 40 tonnes of productive capacity and we had effectively two ponds in production. Uh, today we've got 34 ponds in production. We'll be consistently adding, and there's uh, about eight or nine contract grower.
1: So you started with two, and you now have 34 ponds. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, it's it's been good growth. It's it's uh, but it's sustainable growth. You can't have companies that grow too quickly. And the biggest problem, you know, a lot of companies grow too quickly and run out of cash. Our biggest issue is actually having enough high quality people to grow and and maintain the the safety and the quality environment for the fish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's pre- one of our limiting factors. And I swear it's probably one of our biggest limiting factors going forward.
1: Oh, that's a call out.
0: And I think it's an Australian problem in general.
1: Ross, we've already touched on mm. uh, what an incredibly high value uh, quality fish in terms of texture and taste and that world leading chefs really esteem and look to Maricot as one of the top sorts of products they like to work with. Where, where do you see the key markets currently being and where do you see the greatest growth potential, perhaps nationally and or internationally?
0: Nationally, most people don't know the fish, the species.
1: I was going to ask that. Yeah, I only learnt about it five years ago.
0: And those who do, you know, in the 1880s through to about World War One, it was the most widely consumed fish in Melbourne. Uh, the Port of Moama has records that they alone sent 450 tonnes down In the year 1883 you know they've got records of of murray cod 450 tons being shipped down from moama so there was anything from one to two thousand ton a year we estimate being consumed in melbourne through those years um with the advent of overfishing uh the in introduction of the murray darling scheme and then redfin a species from europe who are very aggressive Little fish, and then followed by the European carp. The species suffered enormously, mm. and they became an endangered species some time ago. Um, for us to see them going forward, you know, our our key markets. Obviously, we're getting great reception in Europe. Uh, we're getting a fabulous reception in the U.S. Japan was really keen on them prior to the COVID lockdown, and the Japanese actually came out here to do their due diligence. on on the farming practices uh, about three days before they had to scurry out of the country for lockdowns. Um, And so we haven't done much with the Japanese since. We sent our first order back to Japan about a week or so ago, but only on a small scale. But because of its high fat content and and its really creamy texture, it's a very high quality smoked product. Um, And so in Europe, there's about 300,000 tonnes a year of smoked fish consumed. That's almost all pink-fleshed fish. Salmon and trout there's not a lot of offerings of high quality white flesh smoked fish, particularly not you know with the the gelatinous content that we've got. So you know if we picked up half a say we picked up half a percent or one percent of that market if we picked up one percent of that market, for example, that's three thousand tons of smoked fish going out, um, which equates to nine thousand tons of fresh fish because by the time you fill it it and then you smoke it, you end up with about thirty percent of the weight so that's that's a real area of growth for us um, in a high value added area. um we've been doing work with Josh Nyland and we'll be making some more announcements on this in the later in the year uh, about value adding many of the offcuts of the fish and how we how we deal with that and what products we can put out there that are available for everyday people. and the other aspect that you know, I'd really like it to be introduced to all Australians. Yeah. You know, I've got the the Wheat Bix phenomenon. You know, as a as a child, I was brought up eating Wheat Bix and Milo and Vegemite, the Australian products. Now, if I go somewhere for breakfast and things are a little bit unfamiliar, I'll eat a bit of a bit of Wheat Bix. What we're looking to do is introduce products over the next couple of years that will be available for young people to eat fish. You know, very few children are promoted to eat fish. The scientific research shows the benefits for children's health both mentally and physically when they're when they're eating more seafood we we really want to push that as a product that they like because we find that kids really like the taste of this fish if we have you know i know if we have a barbecue and our smoked fisher on a on a platter it tends to disappear with three to seven year olds just racing over and picking it off the picking it off the plate while the adults aren't noticing so uh one of our focuses is to introduce it to australians and from a long-term basis to have have them understand that a kuna is a product that's good for them and will be around for them for the future for many years to come.
1: Oh my goodness, there's a whole amazing product opportunity there to compete with um, fish paste and vegemite, you know, healthy stock.
0: Yeah, look, it, it'll never be cheap. It'll never be a cheap product. It's a high quality product and and as a result, it won't be won't be something that'll be accessible you know, really easily from price point of view. But when you look at the health benefits and the taste benefits and the sustainability around it, it'll be worth it for mother, mother, mums and dads to be purchasing this for their kids.
1: High quality fish pastes and fish sauces that you know don't have high levels of mercury or other problematic things in them. I think people would be prepared to pay for them as part of a more plant based diet. They're really key flavour. Really interesting.
0: You know, ultimately, if we're going to improve the health of our society, we have
1: to. In other reports and on your website, you talk about food service and retail, supermarkets, exports, value adding. As you said, you've got some announcements coming around, um, value adding to offcuts of the whole fish. That's all very exciting. We'll stay tuned for that. And you've mentioned your relationship with Josh Nyland. And if you go, people, if you go to Akuna's website, you'll see there are relationships with Hester Blumenthal and various other amazing um, Chefs, international chefs and local high end chefs. What about you? Touched on COVID impacting on the market with Japan. Has has COVID and the recent long cool summer impacted on the business in other ways?
0: Oh look, COVID COVID had a significant impact on us. Um, we were beginning beginning to put fish into supermarkets when COVID hit in the middle of it, and as a result, you know, we couldn't do taste testing. We couldn't have people in. You know, one of the things that sells this fish is that we give people a taste and then they want it and they buy it we were unable to do that through the supermarkets they had real logistical issues with staffing shortages and through their distribution centers so we were unable to get into the the distribution centers we needed to to get fish on the shelves so we were getting constant feedback from customers through our social media sites saying we want this fish, but we can't get it. You said it's in Woolworths at such and such, and we can't get it. Yeah. Why isn't it there? And it was more around the logistics of, you know, just what was happening in society at that time, yeah. which was an issue for us. Of course, many restaurants suffered significantly. So the first five months of this financial year, um, we were, you know, we we reported for the six months, I think we were 29% ahead of the previous year on sales. But that was still a long way behind where we expected to be. Thankfully, in the last few months, it's uh, it's been a very different environment in Australia and demand for our products been very high.
1: Does it have a niche role in the sort of sashimi market?
0: Yeah, Japanese are using it for sashimi. Um, and we do have uh, a number of restaurants in Sydney and Melbourne beginning to trial it as sashimi as well. I have an interesting story of when we first went to the, the Japanese, so the Tokyo Seafood Show a couple of years back with pre-COVID, and we cut up thousands and thousands of pieces of sashimi. <laughs> and uh, But the Japanese people really, really liked it. It's one of the only freshwater fish that they can use as sashimi because over there they have uh, microbes that actually live in the water, which make freshwater fish uh, un, unsuitable for for sashimi products, for raw fish products, um, but we don't have that in our water, mm. um, and so they're they're really keen on it from that perspective. Uh, certainly, we've got a few in LA and and the US looking are uh, using it as sashimi now as
1: well. And that'd be really high premium pricing, wouldn't it?
0: Look, it's not probably not as high as it should be, Anthea, <laughs> <laughs> given the quality and the taste of it. Yeah,
1: fabulous. That's so interesting in terms of biosecurity issues. I know I was at the. NFF conference recently and they were talking about um you know there's always biosecurity issues on the horizon as covid and many other things um have highlighted but that's one of the big strengths of healthy australian waters or or enclosed aquaculture systems is being able to maintain that purity
0: mm, having yeah being able to work on the water quality mm. is one of the great innovations that that our guys have been able to put in place, and it impacts, you know, the health of the fish, the quality of the fish, and the whole grow-out cycle. It's it's a fabulous way they do it.
1: There's a very good infographic on the Kuna's website for anyone who'd like to visit it that sets out really comprehensively the sorts of achievements and goals that that the business has been hitting in terms of sustainability. Ross, you've already touched on a lot of these issues already, but I just thought I'd just spell them out. The website talks about how the business each year sets out tangible targets. Uh, to reduce environmental impacts across the vertically integrated business. And there are four specific areas of focus, water use, energy consumption, feed management, and wild fish populations. You've um, already spoken about how you've released 23 million fingerlings back into the wild. That's absolutely incredible. And we've spoken about feed management. we've, We've spoken about new feed sources. Do you want to talk about feed management issues at all in terms of sustainability Um, continuous improvement or or issues you're working on? Or have you covered that?
0: Well, I think we've covered it to a degree. One of the issues that is is obvious for the aquaculture industry is the use of fish meal. Mm. And it's something that a lot of people, you know, either skirt past or some people focus on it really heavily and other people try to hide away from it. You know, we're currently still having to use fish meal in our diet because we're buying a commercial diet from, from manufacturers. But we don't have the buying power to to dictate what we want our aim is to end up with a diet that contains no fish meal it's not i don't see it as a sustainable industry if you're taking you know 1.5 kilos of fish meal out of the out of the ocean to produce 1.2 kilos of fish in an aquaculture system it's it's just robbing peter to pay paul from a uh An environmental perspective. So we're not there yet, but it's it's something we're working on. We've got our research happening with Deacon now. And we'll say, watch this space.
1: That is so interesting because also um Akuna Sustainable Murray Cod is listed as green in the Good Fish Guide, and that's the highest rating you can get. And from good fish. They 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 speak about the, the amount of wild caught fish needed to produce fish meal and oil from Murray cod is roughly equivalent or less than the amount of farm fish produced. This means that the farms aren't taking out more fish from the ocean than they produce, which is what you've just spoken about.
0: That's we're we're at that point now, but we want to get to the point where we take no, yeah. no wild fish. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't didn't elaborate on our own system. We are certainly using less, uh less wild fish in our diet than we're producing which is you know a positive for the environment yeah for human consumption but we we will aim to get that down to zero and
1: water water use and water recycling i think we've t- you've mentioned how uh, you're using infrastructure that was no longer being used but was in place in in terms of the laser uh, cleared uh, infrastructure and fields and ponds and what have you and yep. the water in the pond in the ponds is kept very very clean and recycled and reticulated numerous times is that right but then ultimately at some stage it is it can be used in other forms of agriculture productively
0: yes eventually when the water you know if we we put some fresh water into the ponds we obviously take some of the older water out and that is often nutrient enriched with nitrites and and some of the fish waste Um, and farmers can use that on their crops on the adjoining fields and, you know, it lowers their their fertiliser levels. It it uh, provides them with a really good usable level of uh, organic fertilisers, impregna- you know, dissolved in the water already, which is great for them.
1: Yeah. And during COVID also, uh, I understand you were participating in a Food Bank for Sydney uh, initiative that employed out-of-work hospitality workers. Do you want to talk about that?
0: Yes, we did for a while. Yes. Yeah, we were providing some fish for that. Yeah, it was a real positive for us and it's it's good to do those types of things.
1: So you're an absolute leader in the industry and in the local Griffith community and environment. You're employing people in clever jobs, you're you know using water in closed loops and you're supporting other agriculture as part of the sustainability and circular resource uh, use in the system. Any other comments about what Akuna currently does in and with the community or might be planning for the future? But
0: one of the big things is building the skill base in the community. And, you know, taking a young person who doesn't have those skills, teaching them, training them, developing them, giving them a, a sense of responsibility and, and growth. And, you know, that's that's all a positive for the community when you've got a community that's got high levels of employment and high levels of skilled people coming through who also begin to look outside their own their own little pocket, you know, they see that our fish are going to Japan or to Europe or to the US. So they understand the connectivity in the world. And I think it just broadens people's outlook um, and generally leads to a a better vibe and a better standard of living, you know, socially and economically within the whole community.
1: Of course, seeing an amazing business like Akuna, it suddenly makes... Uh, makes it much more easy to understand when you're at school why you why you focus on science or biology or marketing or whatever it might be like it's it's really inspirational and tangible for kids in your town and community isn't it it's very exciting
0: yeah it is and we get you know we've had some who've come out as school leavers or even after school uh doing work you know on the ponds or around the around the fish farm and and you know they become really involved in it so it's, it's a great scenario we've got you know one who came as uh on a gap year mm. from university, you know, was going to go to university, never ended up going, is actually doing uni by correspondence now and and continuing to work in the business and taking high levels of responsibility. So
1: Yeah, one of the advantages of COVID we all learn online now.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we've got, you know, we've got some great young people coming through um, who are going to be future leaders in this industry and in this community.
1: You've already spoken about the incredible contribution of, of of contributing fingerlings back into the ecosystem. I was going to have a long-winded long question about that, but I think we've covered it quite well. But I did want to ask you for your personal reflections or comments upon the fish kills of 2018 and 19 and also into 2020. They were due to many things, and we could talk about the Murray-Darling irrigation water scheme and the drought and all the rest. Drought, algal blooms, sudden temperature drops, bushfire runoff where where that applied, and sudden changes in water quality um, following rain are some of the many causes or drivers. Contributors. Contributors. Would you like to comment on that further or any personal reflections from what you saw?
0: Look, it's not, I don't have the personal knowledge and I wasn't in the area to to make personal comment on what happened there or why it happened. Uh, What I can say is that when it occurred, we had some spare aerators that we put on trucks and took over to Menindi for the for the government to use and the local people to use in trying to maintain some of the the health of the fish oxygen reoxygenate oxygenate the water the other thing we did was go over and help harvest some of those large fish that were at extreme risk and obviously some of them ended up dying
1: wow.
0: over there but we we harvested some which we brought back to our hatchery um we've segregated them and we've Begun breeding from them, and we'll be returning some of those fingerlings to the to the the Darling River. Um as the government feels there's enough water and, and it's a safe enough situation for those fish to go back in.
1: It's amazing. So it's helping sustain the numbers, but helping sustain the genetic diversity as well.
0: Mm, absolutely.
1: Heading towards a bit of a wrap perhaps, and thinking about land-based aquaculture in Australia and looking to the future, what do you see as the big challenges to growth in the sector here?
0: The single biggest challenge we face is finding enough people. Mm-hmm. And you know, We're seeing that in regional Australia, we're seeing that across every industry that I talk to. Um, it's a major challenge in Australia. So finding people, developing them, training them and retaining them is probably the biggest challenge we face. We have the system of growing them. Our, our guys have really great innovations occurring, which are improving the way the fish live and grow and, and breed. But uh, the people side of it is probably the biggest challenge we'll face.
1: Are there dedicated aquaculture sort of courses? Or?
0: Yes, there are. And we've been putting a number of staff, you know, we've been sponsoring a number of staff to go through those. Mm-hmm. And we spend a lot of time, our senior people spend a lot of time, uh, you know, training and developing the other people in the company.
1: And what and where do you perhaps see the really big opportunities for business healthy food and perhaps for local communities more generally I mean those are challenges but the really big where do you see the big opportunities being is it geograph- with a through a geographic lens or new species lens or, or
0: this is for us or for, for farm agriculture in general or
1: for land-based aquaculture in general and then also for you specifically
0: look land-based aquaculture is a great system of production it's, I've been in agribusiness for 30 years and it's probably the best agribusiness I've ever seen. Um, it's just fabulous. It produces a beautiful, high quality product. Mm. I think one of the things where we're able to really capitalise is that we produce a luxury product, not a commodity. So, you know, you spoke earlier in your introduction about uh, the salmon industry and I don't have any knowledge and wouldn't make any comment wouldn't be appropriate for me to make any comment about a lot of the stuff that Richard Flanagan's written about. But what I can talk about is that we are not a commodity. You know, the the, uh, the salmon industry in Norway produces somewhere up around a million tonnes a year. The South Americans produce hundreds of thousands of tonnes. Um, Russia, Atlantis, Alaska, Canada, they all have a huge wild catch of salmon. Mm. So salmon, as an example, is a commodity. If somebody wants to charge too much for it, the buyers will buy it from somewhere else. Barramundi, you know, Barramundi is another example. Last numbers I looked at, there was uh, about 25,000, sorry, 22,000 tonne consumed in Australia every year. Of that, 2,000 tonne was wild caught, beautiful saltwater fish. Uh, 5,000 tonne was farmed in Australia. And 15,000 tonnes of Barramundi came in from Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, and so on. And again, that turns it back to a commodity based product. So, three quarters of our iconic Australian barramundi that we're eating actually aren't even produced or harvested in Australia. Murray cod, not only does it not grow anywhere else in the world, it doesn't even grow anywhere else in Australia. It only grows in the Murray Darling Basin. It's an endangered species. So, there's no wild catch to compete with. And effectively, at this stage, there are no other producers of any significant scale anywhere in the world. So, we have what probably call a niche luxury product it's very beautiful product you know beautiful fish to eat and and as a result you know we're we're in a really great position with it if you looked at something like patagonian toothfish i think the uh the licenses for that are about thirty five tonnes tonne a year and it's a magnificent fish sells at very high prices you know across the u.s and even within australia so if we get to ten 000 tons we're still only one third of the volumes of a very rare fish like patagonian toothfish but it's a it's a fish grown in antarctica in very cold waters and and has a wild catch and all the ecological and sustainability issues that they need to manage carefully around that Um, with us we have abundant land abundant water and there's a magnificent opportunity for us to continue to produce this magnificent luxury food product
1: in the Murray-Darling Basin. Mm. I was going to ask if if you'll be exporting any Griffith homegrown smarts anytime soon overseas, but I think you've answered that. <laughs> <laughs> any further thoughts, final comments you'd like to make?
0: Not really. I mean, it's, it's a magnificent product. Our four pillars of, you know, quality, sustainability, innovation and integrity are what drive our company. Um, and we, we won't flinch away from any of those. As you go along, you'll obviously, you know, as we go along, we'll obviously have challenges and hurdles that we have to overcome and things that pop up that we don't expect. Um, but that's part of part of every new industry. And the team of people we have, really clever, open-minded, broad thinking, have, have so far overcome it, all of the challenges that we've faced. And, uh, you know, we see a lot of blue sky ahead for this, this company and this iconic fish for the
1: world to consume. And you're working with amazing other businesses and chefs and partners. So it's just just going to be incredible to watch over the years ahead. Ross, thanks so much for speaking with me and all power to you and all of the team at Akuna. Thanks, thanks very much. Thank you, Anthea. I've been speaking with Ross Anderson, who is the chair of Akuna Sustainable Murray Cod, a really inspiring Australian land-based aquaculture business who produce delicious Murray Cod for people. And as part of that picture, are making a huge contribution to restore stocks of this ancient, culturally and ecologically highly significant fish along the way. To learn more, head to Akuna's website at (laughs) aquna.com. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Anthea.
1: Thanks for listening. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at nourishing matters to chew on. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.